Welcome to part two of our process of a dream, and we're talking about making a difference in life. Many people ask the question, can I make a difference in life? And I really think that question is reflective of a God-given desire. I believe with all my heart it is the will of God that each of us live a life that makes a difference. You may not change a nation, but you could change a life. You will affect someone in your own home or family, a friend, a co-worker. You just have no idea. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, speaking of Moses, it said, A man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. That was Moses. When she saw he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, Moses' beauty wasn't the main point. The mother recognized something very unique and significant in this child. Here's an interesting fact. People who make a difference are inevitably people who have had at some point in their life someone come to them and identify something they suspected was in that person. And when somebody significant came and said, I see this in you, it awakened that purpose in the person. Now, Exodus 2, I'll summarize some of this because I don't want to read it all, verse 11 through 15. It shows that when Moses grew up, he was raised, of course, in Pharaoh's house in Egypt. He went out where his own people, the Hebrews, were and watched them at hard labor, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. Looking both ways, nobody was watching. He killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting each other, and he says, what are you guys fighting each other about? And one of them said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Who do you think you are? Are you thinking of killing me like you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was shocked because he says, now what I did must be known. When Pharaoh heard about it, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh to go to live in the desert of Midian, where he sat down by a well. Then in chapter 3 of Exodus, he's tending the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro. He sees a bush that's burning, but it's not consumed. So in curiosity, he walks up to it, and God speaks to him from that bush and says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. He said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries because of the slave drivers, and I am concerned about their sufferings. So I have come down to rescue them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. It also contains, and he names all the different tribes of the enemies. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I am sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses said, what all of us say, who am I? I don't even have a GED. I didn't go to college. I've had a divorce. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Anybody ever said, well, who am I? 
to do this, to think I could do it, to achieve that. Then I'm going to jump over to Matthew 5, and this is Jesus, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, you can't make it salty again. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it up on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So the Lord says, you, believer, are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. If we're going to make a difference at all in our world, we have to understand what business we're in. We're in the business of being salt and light. If the railroad industry had understood they were in the transportation business, not the railroad business, they could have been relative today making billions of dollars. Unfortunately, they thought they were in the train business. People went out of the phone business because they thought they were in the phone business and forgot they were in the communication business. My grandfather used to say the church is the only business that can go out of business and stay in business. It forgets what it's here for. And boy, is that true. So if we're going to live a life that makes a difference, we have to know who we are, what we're for, and what we're meant to do. Jesus said, hey, you are the salt of the earth. Now, I happen to like salt. Salt adds flavor. You ever get bland food? Go to Norway. You want to dump a pound of salt on it to give it a little pop. Salt is something that spices up flavor. So it's important to know that you are supposed to have some impact around your world that has significance. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians are pale-faced, sad, uninteresting. You know, they're the most boring people in the world. They lack boldness, zeal, life, energy, and yeah, humor. I think humor's been kidnapped from the church. Jesus said, laughter does good like a medicine. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. <laughs> Don't die on me in the service. He said, come on, I want to jack you up. This is not a boring ride. It's a great adventure. Your presence ought to keep things from going stale or rotten. Your presence, when you walk up, ought to promote hope, faith, expectation, right in the middle of despair and negativity. When people are crying and you walk in the room, people ought to perk up. Hey, hope just arrived. Something positive just showed up. You don't walk into somebody fighting cancer and say, well, you know, my aunt had that and she died. Get out of here. Who needs you? No, we need hope. We need faith to encourage people. And somehow that's been forgotten. We think our job is to tell everybody what not to do, how to stand, when to walk, what to wear, what not to wear. Get out of my life. Thank you. That's not the job description of the church. You're the salt of the earth. You live a life that demonstrates what life could be if it gets lived effectively. And salt in a proper dose will create thirst. And by the way, thirst is the easiest environment to minister in. But in the absence of thirst, you're trying to get people to go where, you don't, where they don't want to go, do what they don't want to do. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Light also penetrates. It illuminates. And that's part of our job on this earth, to bring understanding and wisdom. 
And that's a lot easier when we lose religious attitudes and for God's sake, all the religious language. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Glory to God. You, you pick that up in an environment that is not present in the Bible. Never do you hear the apostles or Jesus doing what I hear Christians do, and I'm thinking a CEO without Jesus, but who's interested walks in and hears that, he's going to think you're flakier than a $3 bill. <laughs> now, I'm not going to be able to stop some of you. I'm not, I'm not going to try to. I'm just trying to get you to understand that that kind of language is not used in the Bible the way it gets used for us. There is glory to God mentioned, but it's not the typical, praise the Lord, hallelujah, Jesus, uh, that, that I see sometimes and I'm thinking, even I don't want to be around it. This is my job, and I don't want to be around that. I mean, if I'm going to talk to somebody, can I make sense? If you're going to, you don't, I have, it's kind of like some people cuss every third word, and then some Christians are like, glory to God, and, and glory to God, and, glory, and I'm thinking, that's a crutch. Stop doing that. It, it, it's not normal. There, you, you need to get slapped real hard and say, don't do that anymore. Stop that. People, people, people outside of the church don't even understand that. Now, I find it interesting that when Jesus spoke, he didn't talk like that. He spoke in farming and fishing language, didn't he? He told stories. That's what the people did. That's how they worked. That's where he ministered. He just spoke in their language, used stories about life that they lived. Light also warms. It comforts. Light also drives away darkness. I think we've talked way too much about the devil. You know, and he starts off as a snake in Genesis, and in Revelation, he's a dragon. Somebody fed the sucker, it looks like, you know. Don't, don't make him bigger than he is. We blame him for everything. If our credit card debt's too high, we say, the devil made me do it. If we make unwise, stupid choices, we say, the devil made No, no, he, you didn't, he didn't need to help you. You did it all by yourself. My goodness, take responsibility. God told us as believers, greater is he that's in you than the one who is in the world. So our job is not to be pointing to the darkness. It's revealing the light. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, so let your light shine before men. The light is your conduct, your behavior, your attitude, your speech, your compassion, the way you treat people. You don't slander. You don't uh, dis dis disparage people. You don't oppress people. You're not a bigot. You're not a racist. You're not prejudiced. You're going to let your light shine, and that's attractive to people who haven't been treated otherwise. The church has been terrible about doing this. And when we, uh, I, I suppose, exhibit the Spirit of Christ, people can't ignore that. They, they thought, well, that's different the way they act over there. I didn't feel welcomed at all there, but when I walked in here, I felt friendly, and uh, I saw a lot of different kind of people uh, from my background or my culture or my race. I felt welcomed and right at home. That's different in our society today. You didn't walk in to a Republican church or a Democrat church. You didn't walk into a Tea Party church. You walked into a Jesus church. So, hey, relax. Enjoy it. Outcast, insiders, outsiders, everybody's welcome. That's what Jesus did. Got him in a lot of trouble, but that's what he did. And we're not pointing people to church. We're pointing them to Jesus Christ. So we're called to be salt and light, for God's sake, not medicine. Church always wants to give medicine to the world. 
like NyQuil, makes the symptoms, kind of hides them, but puts you to sleep in the process. And churches often tried to administer medicine to the world, putting them to sleep. But we're salt and light. That means more is demanded of me than anybody I'm communicating with. Be easy on everybody else. Be hard on yourself. Don't tell anybody to do what you're not willing to do yourself. So let's talk a little bit about making a difference, making an impact. Some requirements. Number one, you got to know whose, W-H-O-S-E, whose you are. To make a difference, you've got to know who has ownership of my life. Who am I who am I bequeathed to? Who has ownership of my life? Bob Dylan, in one of his albums a long time ago called Slow Train A-Coming, had a song in there, a single called You Gotta Serve Somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. And old Bob had it right. Whether you know it or not, you are serving somebody. And the more you understand who you belong to, the greater potential to be effective. I have been bought with a price. I am not my own. I'm a believer. Jesus bought me, paid for me. I'm his. That helps clarity. Number two, you got to know who you are. Do you? Are you letting other people tell you who you are? Are you letting culture tell you are? Bigotry, prejudice, are you letting that describe? Are you letting Hollywood tell you who you are? Well, I'm a plus size. Well, where's that in the Bible? You're just bigger or smaller or skinnier or balder or hairier. Nonsense. I'm not going to let anybody in Hollywood describe who I am. Don't let people do that. Let God describe who you are. Who did God create you to be? What did he create you to do? What is your purpose, your vision, your destiny? Paul writes to the Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will or purpose of the Lord is. He wants you to know. Purpose fuels passion. When you've got a sense of purpose, oh, passion quickly follows. If you don't know who you are, whose you are, what you're supposed to do, you just waffle through life floating along with no passion, no purpose. Number three, you have to accept your playing field. What is the sphere of influence you are meant to have? A lot of people overvalue what they're not, undervalue what they are. We pay incredible attention to what other people are doing, so we undervalue what we're capable of doing and then end up doing nothing. We place way too much value on what happens publicly. That's a fact. We all tend to feel that what happens in the public eye is the only thing that makes a difference. But the economy of God's driven by a different engine, sometimes by people in secret, people in obscurity, people you've never met and may never see. There are people impacting the outcome of this church, and you don't know who they are. And because of the desire people have for public influence, most people will refuse not to be known. They refuse obscurity. And there's going to always be some players in life that are not to be known publicly. So accept your playing field from God. Decide, I will make a difference, whether it's private or public. If that's where God puts me, that's fine. If it's the backside of a desert, okay. If it's on a platform, okay. But I'm going to play the cards where God put me. And promotion comes from the Lord anyway. It doesn't come from your position on a stage. Uh, David was hidden, was obscure. Uh, Joseph was in prison. And God had no trouble finding them and promoting them. And by the way, he ain't going to have any problem promoting you. So quit trying to promote yourself. 
take a deep breath and relax. He's got your number. And it'll probably happen when you quit huffing and puffing and trying to promote yourself. God hadn't forgot. If the hairs on your head are numbered for crying out loud, he knows where you're sitting. <laughs> right? Yeah, he does. So selfishness. That's number four. To make a difference, you've got to live selflessly. Selfishness keeps us from being effective, all of us. A self-centered person can think only of themselves, And we live in a self-centered culture. It's all about me. But you have to have a purpose greater than you if you're going to lay your life down for it. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And you'll never have a life that makes a difference unless you can live selflessly, basically for others, for others. Now, we jump back to the finish, and we go back to Moses, and we look at the six obstacles he faced that you will face when you try to make a dream come true. It'll stand in your way of making a difference in your world. Here we go, six of them. Number one, Moses' purpose was threatened at birth. Because of the growing Israeli population in Egypt, Pharaoh declared that he would kill all the male Hebrew children and they were to be drowned in the Nile River, killed them. Now, most of us won't be threatened with physical death, but I suggest every good idea, every new vision from God, every dream God births in you will be attacked immediately by the enemy. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Even with Jesus, Herod ordered the killing of all male children under two, trying to eliminate him at birth before he had a chance to grow and gain influence and make a difference. So the enemy wants to stop you before you ever get where you're supposed to go, because then you're going to be too hard to stop. So we have sudden infant death syndrome with little babies, and their sudden infant death with dreams. The enemy will try to kill them before they develop and have significance and impact and can affect other people, eliminate you early before you have a chance to grow and gain influence and make a difference. Now, all of you had dreams as children. None of you wanted to be insignificant. None of us did. None of you wanted to be a serial killer. None of you wanted to be an alcoholic or divorced three times. Nope. You had a dream. But a failure... A setback, a discouraging word from some authority figure, maybe kill that dream right there before it got started. Or you started to move towards the fulfillment of a dream and something difficult arose. A storm came up, an obstacle was placed in your way. But if you draw conclusions from circumstances alone, you're going to get a false conclusion. And a lot of you have aborted dreams because you declared your dream and somebody said, that's never going to happen. You can never afford that. You can never be that. Who do you think you are? And that's exactly what they said to Moses. And that dream died. So folks, here's the good news. I want you to know that resurrection life through Jesus is in this room today. He's in the house. He can resurrect dead marriages, dead people, dead dreams. He can Pick those hopes right back up again. If you let God back into that place of death, he promises to restore it. He says he will restore the years the locusts have eaten and resurrect your God-given dream. Second obstacle, Moses was raised under ungodly influences. 
many would try to say it's too hard to live a Christian life in the world today. But remember, Moses was raised in an environment where multiple gods were worshipped, and it was not the God of Israel. Yet, in the midst of a complete pagan environment, nothing could stop him. There was nothing around Moses conducive to become what God had planned for him to become. You know, his mother had him for three years. She refused to give him up to the Pharaoh and kill him. And she knew there was something in his future. And that woman prayed over that child. And for every mother that has a child in a secular education who has no money and has no uh, way to pay for a, a secular private Christian school, you better know you still have the God of Israel to back you up and protect your child. Moses was protected. And Moses came out of that Egyptian education as, as a deliverer of a nation and a man that was a friend of God and spoke to him face to face. So don't tell me I, because of my terrible financial situation, I'm going to lose my kid. There are people who lose kids in Christian schools because they don't even have a, a home where anything's practiced. You can't just throw some wild kid in the middle of a Christian school and say, y'all make a Christian out of him. God, help us. Uh, that happens a lot. You do what we won't do. So it was a complete pagan environment. Nothing around Moses conducive to him becoming what God planned to him to become. So don't hide behind the excuse, it's just too hard to be effective in the world today. All I ever hear is about how bad the politicians are, how bad the media is and the journalists and how corrupt and how prejudiced and how biased and how the education system is liberal. Well, for God's sake, why don't you get off a pew, go get an education, become a great journalist, become a, become a run for public office. Why don't you change it? Why don't you become a, a learned, skilled academic professor in a university? You can still be a Christian. You can, why don't we, see, God says you're the salt of the earth. Salt doesn't do any good in the salt shaker. Get the sucker out. Shake it out, baby. This is not where the action is. Get out there in the world. Touch it. Befriend people. Jesus was a friend of sinners. That's what the religious group said about him. Oh, I don't want to go. Oh, they cuss at my work. Oh, well, let's just forget you're here to be salt, to purify it, to affect it, to add some flavor. God put you there for that purpose. I just want to be around Christians. And we cocoon. And we have no impact on the world. It's going to hell in a handbasket. And we sit here singing, Beulah land, or I'll fly away. I wish you would. Fly on right now. Help us. <laughs> well, it makes sense, doesn't it? That instead of complaining about it, why don't we do something about it? Why don't you become an actress? Why don't you become a great singer? And use your skill not just to, to do drugs and, and uh, how many people you can sleep with and how stupid you can behave, but be an absolute knockout entertainer that loves Jesus. What's wrong with that? And you don't have to sing a Christian song, for goodness sakes. There's secular artists that have, have great uh, character and reputation. You can be a great sports guy. You don't have to get shot at 2 a.m. in a nightclub. You, you, can, you can run that ball and be a great role model, a great parent, father, husband. Uh, there are plenty. There's a few. Of, there needs to be more, but there's some out there. I'm just saying, boy, shoot for it, baby. Go for it. Right. I ain't getting a lot of help up here, am I? I no, it's just a lot easier to cuss them and complain about it. I can't believe the country. I can't believe this while we just keep sitting around waiting on the rapture, wondering why, why nothing's changing. Nothing's going to change until somebody t changes it and touches it. That's it. 
Nothing will change. Nothing will get better. So God shows us. So don't hide behind an excuse. I can't have any effect because this world is corrupt. God's mandate is you live in the world, but you don't partake of its value. My value, I'm in the world. I want to live in this world. I love this world. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It's the value of the world system he doesn't like. So I've got a different value system, but I'm in the world, and he wants me to be in it. Jesus in John 17 says, Father, I pray not that you would take them out, but that you would preserve them in it. And that they could have some impact in it. So my values are not determined by this world or what Britney Spears thinks or any other entertainer. What the heck do I care what Lady Gaga says? I happen to like Lady Gaga as an entertainer, but she is not someone directing the course of my life. (laughs) Can you handle that? So our day demands somebody with courage who will stand up, be resolute, and say, I don't care where everybody else stands. This is where I stand. Isolation never solves any problem. Hiding out in church won't change our world. you got to plunge into the problem of society, get dirty with it, but with a life that's redemptive and different. So we ought to be the most passionate, not meanest, passionate people on earth. And people ought to feel the heat of the fire that burns in your heart. People will never catch what hasn't caught you. And we ought to overwhelm the very thing that tries to oppress us. I remember 30 years ago when we opened this church in a little hotel room and over 800 people piled in. At that time in this city, it was dead as Julius Caesar. There was nothing changing anything that was, and all of a sudden, they put us on the front page of the metro section, have no idea how or why, and then they interviewed uh, three local Baptist pastors. I had never met them, didn't know them, they had never been, but they said things like, yes, we understand they're after rich people. It's pretty obvious I failed in that assignment. (laughs) The second one was they have extra biblical writings. In other words, they've written stuff uh, on on a par with the Bible. We only had a King James Bible. I didn't have written anything in my whole life. And uh, they believed all sickness is demon possession. You never heard such stupid stuff. You, you, you think politics is bad? Check out religion and watch what these people do. I couldn't believe I read that. And they, all it was was to incite fear in people because they were dead and losing people. And as a result, they just made these snide remarks. So I wrote each of them a personal letter. Judy typed it. I made a phone call. Not one returned my letter or a phone call. I said, I'll come see you on your terms. I'd like you to interview me, question me on anything you've said. Nothing could be further from the truth. I don't believe, we don't do or practice or believe anything that you have just written. Gutless cowards. And by the way, they're all gone. They, ne- they never made it. We're still right here, right here. I just found, I just got to let you know, it ain't easy. You know, you get a dream, you think it's going to be easy, but it's not true. 
So they tried to discredit us early, frighten people away, made great swelling statements to protect their own insecurity. But for over 30 years, we've been faithful, hardworking, honest, and zealous. We've seen people accept Jesus week after week. Thousands of lives change around the world in many different countries as well as television. We've tried to focus on growing people rather than more than growing a church. We've been steadfast and faithful with a little. Now, just now, God's starting to give us much. We've got ownership of beautiful facilities, a little bit of influence. We've got momentum, increasing favor and visibility. And I have to remember Psalm 75, promotion comes from the Lord, not the north, south, or west. Don't promote yourself. So we battle fatigue, discouragement, lack of resources and manpower, but God has been faithful to us and he'll be faithful to you. He will preserve you alive until what he promised comes true. And I know that that's true. I've lived it. You outlast these silly people that are so ugly and mean and jealous. And people don't believe everything you read. You know, the first to plead his case sounds just until another comes to examine him, Proverbs says. But I'm amazed how gullible people are. Just believe everything. You didn't get the whole story. And if you had, you'd say, well, I didn't know that. Well, you ran your big mouth before you knew that. So zip it. Three, Moses experienced initial setback, failure. In our culture, failure of any kind is unforgettable. If a sports team has a winning year and goes 12-0 and 0 on wins but loses in the playoff, the media and journalists will question the ability of the coach and the key players, and they'll say they were never really any good. Can you believe that? You won 12 and 0. I got this years ago. It's called, uh, it's just an article on failure. Failure doesn't mean you're a failure. It does mean you haven't succeeded yet. It doesn't mean you've accomplished nothing. It does mean you've learned something. Failure doesn't mean you've been a fool. It does mean you've had a lot of faith. It doesn't mean you've been disgraced. It does mean you were willing to try. Failure doesn't mean you're inferior. It does mean you're not perfect. It doesn't mean you've wasted your life. It does mean you have a reason to start afresh. Failure doesn't mean you should give up. It does mean you gotta try harder. It doesn't mean you'll never make it. It does mean it might take a little longer. Failure doesn't mean God has abandoned you. It does mean God has a better idea. Though the righteous fall seven times, the Lord will uphold him. Folks, you can be beaten many times in your life, but you don't lose until you quit. You can either give up or get up. God's a God of a second chance and a third chance. When Jesus was asked by Peter, how often should I forgive? Seven times? Jesus said, no, seven times 70 or as much as it takes. Failure is not fatal and it doesn't have to be final. Get back up. Try again. Everybody goes through it. Everybody. Number four, Moses faced rejection. Exodus 2, verse 14. Who do you think you are, Moses? Who made you a ruler or prince over us? You know, people who make a difference will have to struggle with feelings of rejection. And rejection's got to be one of the deepest wounds of the human heart. So learn this early. The only place to find unconditional love and unconditional acceptance is with the Lord. That's it. That's the only place you're going to get it. Great people always face rejection. 
Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. And because we fear rejection, we build walls around ourselves. We're afraid others who won't, won't, won't like us or who we really are. That kind of makes us hard. So we build walls instead of bridges. But rejection is a fact of life. Beware when all men speak well of you, Jesus said. Can you get this? Everybody ain't going to like you. Can you handle that? It's just not going to happen. If you are a change agent, everybody isn't going to keep your picture in their wallet. It's true. But not, don't let it control you. Remember, dreams are a threat to the status quo. You're going to upset everything. Unfortunately, the church is the last place people who are different find acceptance. Agree with me on everything I believe in, I'll accept you. If not, I'll reject you. Well, what about Jesus' message? Whosoever will may come. See, this is a church of inclusion, not exclusion. I haven't got that, uh, that high on the pay scale where I can exclude anybody from the kingdom. Everybody's invited. Everybody's welcome. You're, you, well, if you're not our race, if you're not our uh, political view, if you don't hold our view on this issue, then we reject you. First question I was ever asked in San Antonio, Texas, when I came here 32 years ago, whatever it was, went to a minister's little picnic to try to make some friends and meet some people, don't know anybody. First question I got asked, what do you believe about tongues? Well, Joy to the world and Merry Christmas. I thought you might ask me, how am I doing? Anything I can do to help? Where'd you come from? Where are you meeting now? We got a few extra chairs if you happen to need them. No. What do you believe about tongues? What do you believe about the rapture? What do you believe? Meaning, if I don't agree with you, you, you'll reject me. That person's not around either. I'm going to outlive everybody. Because I just think they're just flat, dumb, stupid people. And they may be in heaven, but stupid people go to heaven just like sometimes bad people go to heaven. It's all right. I don't, I don't get it. You know, I, I told the Lord, please don't put me in this business. Please don't put me in this business. Uh, I can't handle this, this idiocy that goes on in the name of God or religion, you know. I thought, well, I might be somebody who could be a good friend to you, you know. Now, we Baptists at the time, I'm spirit-filled man now, but at the time, we wouldn't even buy shoes that had tongues in them. We're so afraid of tongues. <laughs> it's true. And I thought, I mean, would you just walk up for your first meeting and somebody new in town, wouldn't you say, I'm so-and-so, very happy to welcome you to our city. We have a great city. Uh, we're here, so-and-so. Can we serve you in any way? Is there anything we can do to help make life a little bit easier for you? But no, it's always got to be. First question, like a bunch of sniffy dogs. It's like, well, what do you believe about? What do you believe about wine? What do you, I believe it's good. I like a Merlot. Okay. What do you believe about? <laughs> Silly. Tattoos or body piercing and all. Objection number five, before I lose everybody. There, Moses experienced a personal sense of inadequacy, and boy, I know that feeling well, and I'm sure some of you do too. Who am I, he says to God, Exodus 3, verse 11. And that's always a problem with destiny and dreams. But you remember the resources don't lie within you, they're in him. Anybody that's going to do anything meaningful at some point is going to feel stretched 
and inadequate. But God speaks to your potential just like he did to Gideon. Gideon argued with the angel of God. I'm the least in my family. My family is the smallest in Israel. I'm poor. But God said, you are a mighty man of valor. God always sees in you what nobody else sees in you. If you constantly focus on what you don't have or how you feel, you'll disqualify yourself. I can't speak. I, I stutter. I'm not educated. They won't believe me. Send somebody else. They're more talented than I am, and on and on and on and on. And after Moses finished with all the excuses, God patiently listened. He says, you through? Now, therefore, go. He didn't change his mind at all. I heard all your excuses, but I'll be with you. And that's the big factor. God will back you up. Remember, it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So remember, the task, the dream will always be bigger than you are, so you have to depend on God and give him the glory. Your job is just obey. Get out and go for it and trust God to make up your inadequacies or whatever lack you have. Sixth obstacle, Moses was subjected to unusual preparation. Forty years on the backside of a desert keeping sheep. Total obscurity. The length of preparation is very often linked to the significance of your function in the future. David is anointed king, but he spends 17 years hiding in caves, running for his life from King Saul, hanging out with a band of distressed, discontented, and indebted people. Wow. He didn't figure on that when he got anointed to be king. And Joseph... He gets to be anointed and chosen to be a ruler. Joseph was betrayed by his own family, sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, wrongly imprisoned, but he never lost sight of the vision for 21 years. So, it may look hard, but it's harder than it looks. If you're going to fulfill a dream, buckle up. You're going to need rhinoceros hide. You're going, to be ha you're going to have to be bad to the bone. You're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to endure hardness. You're going to have to know a little bit of hurt, a betrayal, a setback. It's just part of the process of a dream. But it won't stop the dream. That's what's important. It won't stop the dream. Nothing in your life or mine is ever wasted. Never say, this thing I'm doing now is so important. Moses is 40 years, he's first, he's raised in 40 years in, in the Egyptian schools, the palace of Pharaoh. So he knows royalty, protocol, authority. He knows the wisdom of the Egyptians. You got to know they were good in science and uh, astronomy and measurements. Look at what they built. He learned in all those skills. Okay, that's not enough for what God had for him, but that was important. Now he goes out on the desert for 40 years with a bunch of sheep in a hostile environment, not knowing that his future is going to need science and it's going to need leadership with sheep because he's going to have three million of them in the desert and he's already spent four, four decades in a desert knowing how to live and how to work in that environment. See, he, but when God made him the patriarch and the leader of, of Israel, he was ready. He was prepared. He thought all that was a waste of time. Wasn't a wasted at all. 
Joseph thought his life was a waste. Sold into slavery, goes into a royal home as a slave, but he's very excellent. He gets trusted. He gets promoted. He's over all of Potiphar's uh, household. He, he learns protocol. He learns how the culture works. He doesn't know that's what he's learning. He learns the language of the Egyptian. Then he's thrown into jail. Now, he's been to the upper crust. Now he's in the lower crust. And he knows how those stinking, thieving, lying prisoners think. He learns a lot in jail for two years. And then when he's promoted over the whole nation and people and nations are coming to him to try to con him out of food or buy and sell, he's ready. He knows everything about Egypt. He knows the culture. He knows the protocol. He knows the liars. He can spot one. He's ready. God didn't waste a thing. And God had to work him into a prison to get him there to hook up to a butler who had access into Potiphar's. Can you see how this thing is weird? God was working all the time, and he's working in you. Don't you dare think, well, this is just a waste of time. I can't believe I'm still waitressing, or I can't believe I'm still in this job. I can't believe. Hey, you better believe God's still working. That's what you better believe. He is still working, and he will use that redemptively in your life for your future. Learn how to serve. Learn what you will never do when you become a leader by how you're treated when you're not. You're, make it an education. That's a skill. God wants to develop you in those years of obscurity. Don't let it get wasted. Some of you are called to public influence, but you're not ready for it yet. God has to get your private life to match up with the public life he sees in your future. And if you can't be successful in private, you're going to fail in public. So the challenge, be faithful. Be patient and submit. And the fight will be not to become ungrateful, bitter, and complaining. When you're in the preparation phase, the tendency will be, why am I in this place? Why am I in this position? Why isn't God helping me? Why is it taking so long? Why is it so hard? But I'm telling you, that's kind of like labor with a baby, isn't it? You got to fight. After the baby comes, everything's happy. Pain is soon forgotten. Well, that's what they tell me. I never actually had one, but that's what my wife tells me. And the joy of that child overshadows the pain of what you went through for nine months and throwing up and getting sick and having to stay sick because you can't take medicine for because of the baby. It's, it's just uh, ongoing, isn't it? I'm just thinking, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of pain in destiny and dreams. But the reward will outweigh all of it. You'll finish life well done, well done, good and faithful servant. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media 